man. Thank you, Brother Dan. I uh, have a confession to make, uh, and I know I've shared it before. Uh, the uh, study guide I'm using is by A.W. Pink, a great scholar. <clears throat> and uh, But I think his study guide was probably written in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And a lot of the words that he used, we don't use anymore. And uh, you notice the title of our lesson, The Perfect Completeness of Christ. In the study guide, that's all one word, but not that word. It's a word about that long. And uh, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit bit, because it will fit across the top of the paper. And I thought, I've never heard that word used in my lifetime. And uh, nothing wrong with the word. It was an excellent word, but I did some research. And the best thing I could come up with, that word is defining the perfect completeness of something. And, of course, that's being applied to Jesus Christ. But I also realize perfect completeness only fits one person. Isn't that true? It really can't apply to anything or anyone else. And that's what we're focusing on. Let's go back, Matthew 11. Let's read verse 28 and 29 again. Because this is where our basis is for our text, our study tonight. Anybody want to read it? Okay, thank you, Dan. Uh, let's just kind of do a little bit of uh, looking at that, of those two verses for a moment. Uh, first of all, who is giving the invitation here? Jesus is. And as we read those two verses, how do you, how would you describe probably his attitude when he gives this verse? How would you describe his attitude when he gives this verse. Say it again. Loving. Loving. Why would you say that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's great. Somebody else. I mean, that's good. Somebody else. Do you see him demeaning anybody? No. Yeah, very humbly. Marvin? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, isn't that good? Yeah. You know, and, and Marvin, I don't know, I think if there's any frustration, he's frustrated with what the Pharisees are putting on people. Yeah. And he's simply saying, hey, all you need to do is what? Come to me. What a gracious invitation. And, and Daniel read it a moment ago, who's invited? Everyone is. Everyone who labors, everyone who's carrying that heavy burden, so he doesn't exclude anyone. So it's it's a loving, a lovingly gracious invitation. <clears throat> but then he gives a wonderful promise, and he says, "I will give you what rest." 
Say it again, fellas. Yeah, an inner peace, sir. I will give you rest. A gracious invitation, a precious promise. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Now I need to ask you again, who is saying this? Jesus. Who is Jesus? Son of God. So, I keep, I don't mean to keep hammering the nail, but I want to make sure we understand. So is he less than God, Phyllis? He's equal to God. And the one who's the God of the universe, the one who Paul said he before all things and by him all things consist, he says that he is meek and lowly. So he offers an invitation to come, a precious promise to give us rest. But he said, if you're going to have that rest, you're going to have to take his yoke upon you. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And that we have to learn of him. Now, again, just to touch on it, that yoke, it, it's really the idea of submitting our wills to his will. Submitting to his authority and saying, yes, Lord, I want you to be Lord of my life. And if somebody is Lord of your life, what does that mean? Say it again. Yes, he rules our life. We're looking at tonight again, what we began last week, what it means to learn of him. We looked at three important principles last time. Number one, Christ is the antitypical prophet. Uh, he's the final prophet. He's the prophet to whom all the Old Testament prophets pointed, and who alone can make known the perfect will of God? Jesus. Second of all, Jesus is the grand teacher of the church. It's his church. Everyone else are supported to him and appointed by him. The third thing we talked about last week, Christ is the chief shepherd, and he also feeds the flock. And every under-shepherd learns from him. Every under-shepherd receives from him. He is the personal word in whom and through whom divine perfections are wonderfully displayed. We see it in Christ. A couple of weeks ago in the adult cynical class, we were in First John uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Look what it says. John 1, verse 18. Anybody want to read that? Jesus tells us no one's ever seen God except who? Except Christ. And Christ came to declare, to explain, to show us who God is. 
And so if we are going to learn correctly, we have to come to Christ. If we want to know God, we have to know Christ. So Jesus says, learn of me. So not only is he the final spokesman for God, he's the one by whom God's will is fully given, but he's also the greatest example set before his people. We are to follow him. And certainly we can think of a, a lot of the Old Testament prophets, the apostles, and they were all involved in proclaiming the truth. But were they the truth? Were they the embodiment of the truth? No. So Christ, when he came, he did so much more than just proclaim the truth. He is the embodiment of the truth. And certainly, when Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, these requirements involved looking at the character and the conduct of the Lord Jesus Christ. How he lived while here on this earth. Of all of God's people, men and women, who came before Christ, how many of them were equal to him? None. So I think we can agree. Jesus Christ, the one we're to learn of, he is radically different from all those who came before him. But what about those who come after him? He's also radically different than them. Jesus did a lot of teaching while here on this earth. Did he ever make a mistake in his teaching? No. What about his character? Was there a blemish in his character? No. Nothing wrong in his conduct. And so, Jesus Christ, now think about this for a moment, okay? We can speak about some great men and women of the Scriptures. But which of them were perfect in their character and conduct? None of them. Only Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says, learn of me, we have to remember that, that, that the life that he lived gives us a perfect standard of holiness, and he gives us a perfect standard to follow. 
And we could think about a couple of folks here tonight. Moses is the only one who that we know of talked face to face with God. But was Moses' conduct flawless? Nope. In fact, that's why he didn't go into the promised land until about 2,000 years later on the Mount of Transfiguration. I think of the Apostle Paul, great Bible teacher. And this is only my opinion. Uh, other than Christ, the greatest teacher there ever was. Now again, I think all the apostles would fit that bill. Uh, God's word is inspired. It's, it's, uh, God breathed. But do you think Paul's conduct, even after salvation, was flawless? No. Yeah, and he was human like we are. I think about the time when him and his missionary friend, good friend, Barnabas, had a conflict. How bad was the conflict? They split. Now, let's be honest. Somebody was wrong. But there again, I think the hand of God was in there. So now, instead of having two missionaries, you end up with four. So, but there again. So, Christ left us an example, and we ought to follow his steps. That's why he said, learn to me. A uh, couple of things, because we're born again. Number one. We should imitate his holiness. Do you remember how the name Christian came to be in the New Testament? Anybody remember that? <laughs> You're very close. That's what the word means. They were called Christian because they were Christ followers. Now, many theologians believe originally it was a derogatory term. Oh, you're one of them. You're a Christian. But the bottom line is this, is this. Today we, can, we call ourselves what? Christians. And if we bear his name as Christians, does it stand to reason that we ought to imitate his holiness? Yes. But my friend, my, oh my, how that's lacking in the church today. Phyllis, you said something a while ago hurt my feelings. You said we're all human. We're all prone to mistakes. Who are you talking about? Everybody, including us, right? All of us. And so we know we're going to fall short of the standard that he set. For us. We're going to fall short in this line. But understand something. Our goal ought to be meeting that standard. It ought to be the highest priority of our life. So we should, number one, imitate His holiness. Second of all, we ought to live in conformity to His Example. I think one of the problems 
of modern-day Christianity is we've made it all about ourselves. Uh, in America, you know, we have a church on every corner. And I'm not saying that's wrong, necessarily. But the day I make you mad, chances are you'll do what? Find another church. But how many know that wasn't true in New Testament days if you were Jewish? But I want you to realize it's not about us. It's about the honor of Christ. And the very honor of Christ demands conformity of Christians to his example. Now, by the way, uh, again, Christ is God. But even in the Old Testament, that principle is true. Because of the couple of times that God told Moses, back away. I'm going to zap him. And I'll start all over with you. And basically what Moses said was, God, don't do that. Because then people think you couldn't do what you said you're going to do. In other words, it's going to hurt your honor. And Moses knew it wasn't about his honor. It was about God's honor. Let me remind you again that the closer you walk with God, the more the world will not like you. And there's no better way than to stop the mouths of those who reject Jesus No better way to vindicate his name from the reproaches of the world. Because people need to see that Christ has made a difference in our lives. We shared in Sunday School, Jason, you played that video clip of the number of people who claim to be Christians who don't believe the Bible is true. The number who claim to be saved that believe that Jesus sinned. The number who claim in America four out of five claim to be Christians and less than half go to church. And they live like the world. And the world says, you're, you're no different than we are. And the only way to stop their mouths is to live in conformity to the example of Christ. Matthew eleven nineteen. What do they accuse Jesus of doing? Being what? Yep. Friend of public is tax collectors and sinners. In that day and time, it was almost synonymous to be a public and a sinner, both the same in their eyes. But then Jesus made a remarkable statement. He said, wisdom is justified of her children. If 
If you've ever studied the book of Proverbs, you'll know that wisdom is also personified as a woman there as well. And Jesus does the same thing here in Matthew eleven nineteen, And he's talking about the wisdom of God. And Jesus said, wisdom is justified of her children. <laughs> now, first of all, who's a, who is the Son of Man? It's Jesus. And he came and he mingled with the world. But make no mistake about it, he mingled with the world, but he didn't sin. Okay? And so they said, well, you know, he, he, he ate at the house of sinners. And so certainly he has to be a sinner. Now, first of all, who is Jesus? Son of God. He is God. Um, technically, who sent Jesus? God did. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. So we read something like Matthew eleven nineteen, and the first part of the verse. One might conclude, well, Lord, you blew it this time. You made a mistake this time, but what's wrong with that theology? He doesn't make mistakes. And so even though they made the wrong conclusion, Jesus said wisdom is justified of her children. And his point was that God's wisdom was seen in the deeds that Jesus did. Now, isn't it true that Jesus came into our world just the way Isaiah prophesied that he would? Isaiah said he, when he comes, he would have no form of coming. Doesn't that anybody would desire him? In fact, if you were living in Jerusalem or anywhere in Israel, and you saw Jesus coming down the road for the first time, you would recognize him as what? Say what? Yeah, a Jewish man. We'll be in John 4 on Sunday in Sunday school. And the woman of Sychar said, well, I guess who she recognized him as first? A Jewish man. Why? That's what he looked like. He didn't have a halo around his head. He didn't walk six inches off the ground and hover. He looked just like any other Jewish man. So what Christ is saying here, you'll see God's wisdom in what I do. And, and they could see the kingdom power through the miracles of Jesus Christ. And so these miracles justified what he taught. I almost put the verses in our notes tonight, but I decided not to. But many of you remember the man in John 9 who was born blind. Jesus comes along and the disciples ask him, Lord, who, who sinned? 
Surely this man has sinned or his parents did something bad. Otherwise, he wouldn't be blind. How many, how many know that's bad theology? And, and Jesus told them that. That neither this man or his parents. Now, Christ was not saying they were sinless. He was saying there was not a particular sin that brought this blindness on. He's blind that I might be glorified. You know the story. Spits in the dirt. Makes a poultice of spit in mud. Boy, that sounds good, doesn't it? And he heals him with blindness. But you know what was wrong that day? That was a Sabbath day. And when the Pharisees got wind of it, guess what? They were irate. Yeah. Anyway, uh, there wasn't a church down the road. And the Pharisees already made a law. If we find out you, you pledged your allegiance to Christ, we're going to boot you out of the synagogue. So his parents did not want to lose that, so they said, ask him. Ask our son. He's old enough. All we know, he is our son. And all we know that this morning we left his house, he was blind. So yes, it's our son. Yes, he was blind. And now he sees. So the Pharisee began to question this guy. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? And this unlearned, ignorant layman says, What do you mean, where did he come from? There's no way he could do what he did except he comes from God. Wisdom was justified by his deeds. We live in a world that's going to stand against us as Christians. They're going to try to find a way to ridicule us to prove that they were right and we were wrong. And I say tonight, church, let's don't give them a reason. Let's live in conformity to the example of Jesus Christ. Because as hard as those Pharisees tried to discourage this man, one thing they could not deny was the change in that man's life. And I want you to know, the world will argue our theology all day long. But my friend, they cannot argue against a changed life. And that's how we can stop their mouths. And so we live in a world where people might reject his miracles. Where people will reject his teaching. 
But my question is tonight, no matter how many choose to reject it, does that change the truth? No. And no matter how much they reject it, it will not hinder the arrival of the kingdom of God. Wisdom is justified by our children. And I would suggest tonight this is the only way that wisdom can be justified of their children. How many people unsaved do you know that pick up their Bible and read it? Very few. What breaks my heart, very few Christians do that. And so they're not going to pick up God's Word and read about His life. And that's why it's important that you and I live in conformity to His example and live it out before a lost world. Jesus can make a difference in our lives. And when that happens, the world is going to notice it. Would you agree that the world sees what we practice? They also hear what we profess. And what we say... What we profess better be backed up how we live. There's a young lady who works with Pam. And uh, I don't think she's a Christian. And she's, I think she's getting ready to have her first baby. And I know she's had some health problems and a lot of things went on there. And I think she's very, very close. Maybe, in fact, by this weekend she may have her baby. But for the last couple of years, Pam has kind of tried to mentor her in a lot of ways. And Pam even bought a little outfit for the baby to come. And uh, Pam called her a young girl, but, you know, at our stage in life, everybody's young now. Uh, but anyway, she wrote Pam the nicest card. And she said, you, I can't explain how you have encouraged me these last few years. And you have been the greatest mentor in my life. The world sees that. Of course, Pam was humbled by that. She was honored. My friend, unless there's a consistency between our profession and our practice, we can never glorify Christ before a world that has cast him out, ever. Many, many years ago now, I'm at the point in my life where everything was many, many years ago now, okay? One of the jobs I had at General Motors when I worked hourly, my job was to give people a 23-minute break 
and there were so many in our group, and I would go from one job, one station to another. And in the summertime back then, they always hired hired uh, college kids to work in the summertime to help them with their tuition. And I always loved it because I had a chance to witness the new people. And this particular night, uh, there happened to be a young college lady there, and she was across the line on the other side of the line from me, and there was like a track between us, and uh, so high off the ground, and we couldn't cross over too dangerous, but we could talk. And uh, she introduced me, gave me, and I introduced myself, and I, I began to witness to her, and she asked me, where did you go to church? And I told her. And as soon as I did, she had the awfulest look on her face. And I said, ma'am, something's wrong. I can see it on your face. And she explained to me that she worked at a local restaurant. And a group from our church, this has been many, many, many years ago, before, long before, before I became pastor, had gone over there and caused a horrible scene. I knew who they were. And I said, man, please forgive. Because I know who that group was. And they do not represent our heartbeat. But you know what happened to my testimony that day? She saw what they did. And she wasn't interested in what I had to say. And folks, there has to be a consistency between what we say and how we live. So we're talking about conformity. First of all, there has to be an inward conformity. Now, how many know, before there can be any resemblance on the outside, it has to start where? On the inside. It's got to start in the heart. There has to be an experiential oneness with Christ before there can be a practical likeness. Now again, why do you think they were first called Christians at Antioch? Because they acted like what? Like Christ. There was an inward conformity. And there is no way we can be conformed to Christ in external acts of obedience unless we first conform to Him in those things that begin on our hearts because that is where those actions flow out of. Jesus said, with the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We must live in the Spirit before we can walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.25. Somebody read that, please. If we live in the Spirit, do what? Walk in the Spirit. So we have to live in that Spirit before you can walk in the Spirit. But also, our mind ought to 
regulate all our other senses. Philippians 2.5. What's that tell us to do? Yeah, think like Jesus. Act like Jesus. Live like Jesus. Romans 8, 6. Somebody read that, please. Amen. Isn't it true the mind that Jesus had was a mind of self-denial? A mind that was devoted to the will of the Father? And so if we're going to live our lives in conformity of Jesus Christ, it has to begin with an inward conformity. It begins in the heart, the inner man. Because when Jesus said, learn of me, right away he adds, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Follow my example. And I think it's important that we pay attention to the order God gives you, the order of sequence, or if you will, because there's no way we can learn of him in the sense he meant until we have taken his yoke upon us, and until we surrender ourselves to him. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is not just asking an intellectual learning of him, but he's asking for experiential, effectual, transforming learning of him. And if we're going to Reach that goal. We have to be completely subject to him. We've got to take his yoke upon us. Learn of me. Learn of me. Don't be afraid to come to him for help. Don't be afraid to ask him for instruction and direction. And because he says, I am meek and lowly. This verse just came to my mind. It's not in my notes. But James said, if any man lack wisdom, do what? Ask God. And he will never upbraid us. He will never ridicule us. He is meek and lowly. How many remember growing up many, 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 many years ago? You did something and you knew you had to tell your parents, but you were afraid to tell them. Yeah. My dad built our second new house growing up in 1967. And uh, I had a cheap phonograph record player. How many remember them? 
Now, some, some of you guys lived on the rich side of the track, and you had one you could load four or five records on the spindle, remember those? And it would drop one down at a time. I didn't have that. You place it on her by hand one at a time. <laughs> and I probably only had two anyway, two records. And uh, if you had the long playing album, there was a small hole in the center. If you had one of them 45s, you got a little round checker, whatever you want to call it, put on there, and it would hold that. Well, for whatever reason, my record player quit making sound. And I never forget we had a slide button, one for 45s and one for long play, and one was faster. And I'm in my bedroom by myself, brand new house. And I thought, you know what, i got an idea. I'm going to take my big pen apart. And if I squeeze hard enough, I can get it on that spindle. And I did. And I turned it on. I had it on 33 RPM at first. It was going. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Let's put it in high gear. So I did. And that pen broke. And there was ink all over, freshly plastered, not drywall, plastered walls. I don't remember what happened when I told my parents, but I'm still living. I didn't think I would be. So I know I didn't run quickly to touch the no, but I knew also I couldn't hide it for long. Here's the nice thing about our God. We never need to hesitate to come to Him because He is meek and lowly. The very one who's the maker of heaven and earth, the very one who is a king of kings and lord of lords, the very one before whom all the angels in heaven fall down in homage before him. And the Bible tells me he is still the friend of sinners. What a God. What a God. Hebrews 4.15. What does that mean, Dan? Yeah, but what what if this happens? I say, God, you don't understand what I'm going through. He knows. He understands. He understands. I called our former pastor, Jerry MacArthur, on Monday. It was the anniversary, first anniversary of the passing of his wife. And I said, Brother Jerry, I wish I could tell you I know how you feel. I think I know how you feel. But I don't because I haven't gone through that. My friend, there's nothing in your life that God doesn't know how you feel. God is able to, Christ is able to solve 
any problem we have. He is able to supply strength for the weakest. Because God became a man and he possessed human feelings. And he is capable of being touched with the feeling of our infirmity. That's why he says, learn of me. Learn of me. Why is that difficult for us? Say it again. Who are you talking about? Yeah. Can we call that pride? Yes. And that's why it's so difficult. Because of the me in us, the pride. I think a lot of that, a lot of time it's difficult because our hearts are impatient. And what's interesting, Jesus said to remedy that pride and that impatience, said, let me be your example. And how many know that Jesus doesn't ask anything of us but what he's already lived before us? And Jesus said, now remember, did he have to come to this world? No. But Jesus said, what I did wasn't for my benefit, it was for who? For your benefit. Learn of me. So, Jesus says, follow the path I've laid out for you. And if you look real closely, you may even see my footsteps all the way. What a great argument. What a wonderful recommendation. The yoke of Christ. Because to those who love him, to know that Jesus bore it himself. Matthew 23, verses 2 and 4. Anybody want to read that? We have scribes and Pharisees. You've heard of them before. They, uh, Jesus said they sit in Moses' seat. They have authority. And Jesus says, 
what they tell you to do from the law, what's the answer? Do it. But don't follow the works. Because they say, and what? They don't do it. All they do is put burdens on you. Burdens that they themselves cannot carry. And they expect you to carry them. Now, by the way, that was hard for even some of the disciples to shake. Peter at Antioch ate with Gentiles until the Jews showed up. And in Galatians, Paul writes about that. He said, I was stood him to his face. And he told Peter, you're trying to make him do things we couldn't even do. We don't even do. And I want you to realize Jesus was not like the Pharisees. He called the very hand because they gave heavy burdens that were hard to bear. And Jesus said they wouldn't even take them. They wouldn't even use a move a finger to try to lift one of them. We must be conformed to Christ if we're going to honor His life as we live in a broken world. Let's stop there for tonight. We'll pick it up next week. Got quite a ways.